It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The thing about having a one-hour Sunday show is that sometimes it is hard to get everything in, but we tried yesterday with extensive coverage of the Mideast War, uh, a look at the media beating up on the new speaker, the previously obscure Mike Johnson, uh, an interview with Chris Christie, uh, a segment on various Trump legal developments, and now the gag order in one of those cases has just been reinstated. Um, So I hope you had a good weekend. And if you didn't see the show and are interested in those segments, they are online. Meanwhile, Andrew Cuomo appearing on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, uh, coming back from the wreckage of his governorship. And he's not on TV because he likes to be on the tube. He's trying to both restore his reputation and looking at, I believe, an eventual comeback in politics. So he described... um, the accusations of many women of sexual harassment or sexual touching as kind of a vendetta. This is cancel culture on steroids at the highest level with the Justice Department. 11 cases, that's how many women made accusations, trigger the cancel culture. Everyone has to be first before they get accused by a women's group of not moving fast enough. He was critical of President Biden for calling on him to resign. Quote, you have to resign, but I didn't read the report, but doesn't matter, you have to resign. And it was the state attorney general, Letitia James, who concluded after an investigation that Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and in doing so violated federal and state law. And Andrew Cuomo's response is, she wanted my job. She did run for governor and failed after he resigned and when acting governor Kathy Hochul won the job in her own right. That was part of the motivation here, said uh, the former governor. Uh, She put out a report. She said 11. That was brilliant manipulation of this because you and everyone else said 11 cases is so many. I don't even have to bother reading the report. And he says he was appearing with his former chief of staff, Melissa DeRosa, has a book out. And she says the New York Times was the driver of this manufactured scandal. So they are mounting a counter-offensive. All right, number one. This is now the fourth day of this uh, expanded ground operation against Hamas. And Israel is warning hospitals in the northern part of the Strip to evacuate. But as Israelis were, troops were trying to get deeper inside the territory... The WHO said, urging Israel to rescind the warning, say it was impossible to clear hospitals without risking the lives of patients amid severe shortages of medicine and health facilities. This is the problem. You know, Hamas is very happy to put up uh, military organizations right near a hospital, and that makes it difficult for the Israelis. And then, you know, world opinion is uh, how can you possibly target a hospital? They're not targeting sick patients in a hospital. They're trying to topple Hamas. But this shows you the difficulty of that. Meanwhile, 47 trucks with food, water, and medical supplies entered Gaza yesterday. 
That's the largest one-day total since President Biden won that agreement, in part with Egypt, to allow the trucks to go through. Originally, it was 10 a day, now 47. That's encouraging, but it's still, you know, a drop in the bucket for what Gaza needs. And, you know, you've got to, no matter which side of the war you're on, you've got to be sensitive to the fact that you have at least a half million Palestinians, maybe more, evacuating their homes in the northern part of Gaza. Uh, But the southern part of Gaza is not entirely safe either. And these uh, shortages brought on by the Israeli blockade uh, have created a growing humanitarian crisis. There's simply no question about it. Now, to the question of how Israel was uh, taken by surprise on October 7th, Israel, the strongest military in the Middle East. How did this happen? New York Times. It was 3 a.m. on October 7th, and Ronan Barr, head of domestic security for Israel, couldn't figure out if what he was seeing was just another Hamas military exercise. Uh, He saw some unusually active um, activity for the middle of the night. Israeli intelligence, national security officials, had convinced themselves that Hamas had no interest in going to war. Just assumed it was a nighttime exercise. Now, their judgment, this is a pretty devastating paragraph, their judgment might have been different had they been listening to traffic on the handheld radios of the Hamas terrorists. The Times says militants, I wish they would drop that word. They know it's terror. But Unit 8200, Israel's Signals Intelligence Agency, had stopped eavesdropping on those networks a year earlier because they saw it as a waste of effort. What a colossal mistake. They had been listening in on conversations, decided, well, this is not happening. And the entire response by the Israeli military would have been different had they not dropped that defensive effort. So Barr then concluded, well, Hamas might be uh, attempting a small-scale assault, talked to Israel's top generals, and ordered the Tequila team, interesting name, a group of elite counterterrorism forces to deploy to Israel's southern border. Until nearly the start of the attack, nobody believed the situation was serious enough to wake up Bibi Netanyahu, according to three Israeli defense officials. And that's how the most powerful military force in the Middle East totally failed in its intelligence-gathering efforts, mostly due to hubris and the mistaken assumption that Hamas was a threat contained. Now, once this war finally winds down, which is going to be not in the near future, uh, I'm sure, I know there will be an investigation or multiple investigations of the failure on October 7th. But here the New York Times has gotten to a couple of key elements that I'm sure will be part of this, and none of this is going to help Netanyahu, who posted something criticizing the military response and then deleted it, since Bibi has never taken responsibility for this probably one of the most horrible days in Israeli history. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right. Last week, I read a lengthy excerpt from a column in the New York Times by Tom Friedman, who's very pro-Israel, but also wants Israel to exercise some restraint. Today, I'm going to do a deep dive on a piece by Andrew Sullivan of The Weekly Dish. He is much more critical of Israel and Israel's supporters than I am, but I want the podcast to be a place where we can discuss all kinds of views. So, in this piece, Sullivan says, at home, meaning here in America, Israel supporters are engaging in a frenzy of defensive cancel culture, and that's never pretty. If you've spent the last few years decrying woke intolerance, you might express some smidgen of hesitation before doxing, hounding, firing, and naming all those who've taken the side of the Palestinians. Zillionaire Bill Ackman demanded a blacklist of students who've been protesting Israel so he and others wouldn't inadvertently hire them. And Israel supporters have ceded the high ground. Now, here are some of the examples. Uh, The Boston-Palestine Film Festival decided not to hold live screenings and went online. A German literary organization called off an awards ceremony at the Frankfurt Book Fair to honor a Palestinian novelist. A Jewish editor at a science journal was fired for retweeting an Onion article. Berkeley Law Professor says he wants law firms to ask students what organizations they belong to before hiring them, saying if a student endorses hatred, it isn't only your right, but your duty not to hire him. Now, all that stuff being canceled, I don't like cancel culture. I don't like cancel culture on any side. So there, I think, Andrew scores some points. Also mentions the Orthodox Jewish Chamber of Commerce pressured Hilton Hotels into canceling a U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights event in Houston where Rashida Tlaib was slated to speak. Now, he says, look, some pro-Israel wokesters insist they're consistent. Quoting Ben Domenich, these students are different. They didn't make a casual comment. They all signed on to a letter expressing an actual position that may have negative consequences for them. It's a political position. And Sullivan asks, so taking a political position justifies cancellation now? And so then he takes a turn and says, supporting terrorism is the exception to the cancellation rule, we're told. But supporting terrorism, quotes, is a mighty nebulous concept. Countless political arguments about armed struggles around the world, South African apartheid, The Irish question have involved rival disputed claims of supporting terrorism. Should those debates have never happened? At least one right winger was honest. They canceled conservative speakers and now we're supposed to take it easy on the very bullies that sullied our culture with their totalitarian methods. So again, Andrew, we can't suddenly change our tune when the words are coming from the decolonizing, that's also in quotes, left. And then he really gets up ahead of steam. Um, Some ways Israel's defenders were the original pioneers of cancel culture, deploying the smear of anti-Semitism against anyone critical of Israel's policies has long been a time-honored tactic in the arsenal of the ADL, AIPAC, and much of the pro-Israel media. And that has a chilling effect on debate. Uh, Of any real American pressure, on Israel, from George H.W. Bush to Barack Obama. Well, let me just pause here and say that 
I think there are a lot of Jewish Americans, and I think there are a lot of Israelis who criticize the Netanyahu government or the government of whoever happens to be in power. These are healthy debates. So the idea that they're just throwing these smear campaigns around is something I completely don't agree with. But when he talks about American pressure on Israel, uh, Sully goes on to say, this enabled the Jewish state's worst instincts, entrenched and extended its indefensible settlements, and kept any possibility of a two-state solution out of reach. Yes, the Palestinians repeatedly choked at the prospect of a deal as well. Glad he mentioned it, or I would have. They bear the lion's share of responsibility. But the settler program, a war crime, was proof that Israel had moved way past sincerity on a two-state solution. And Washington was too weak to say no. And anyone who did was targeted for personal destruction inside the Beltway. You think anti-Semitism was kept at bay by policing the debate in this way? So some thoughts. I mean, he paints with way too broad a brush here. Anybody who questioned Israel suddenly subject to a smear campaign, falsely accused of being anti-Semitic. I don't think that's even close to being true. Is the charge of anti-Semitism sometimes thrown around too loosely? Yeah. But, you know, the way he just throws in a sentence like, well, yeah, the Palestinians uh, weren't helpful either. The Palestinians had several chances at, if not a two-state solution, uh, taking a substantive step toward a two-state solution. I remember this under Bill Clinton and other presidents. And they always would find some reason to object. Maybe that's how they keep a hold on their people. On the settlements, I mean, a few settlements in order to have a Jewish presence on the West Bank, which is, of course, occupied territory. But I have to add, it's occupied territory because Egypt and Jordan attacked Israel in the 1967 war. And that's why Israel has the boundaries today that it does. Occupying the West Bank. You can't really say occupying Gaza. This came up on Media Buzz yesterday. As Liz Clayman reminded us, the Israelis withdrew, voluntarily withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005, almost two decades ago. And they said to the Palestinians, here, you run it. And then Hamas won an election and to this day controls the government. And, oh, and by the way, not to go off on a tangent here, but and I, it broke my heart to see these um, videos of Palestinian people breaking into food distribution centers just to get some food to feed their family. But, but by the way, Hamas took a lot of the money that it has gotten from other countries. And rather than trying to improve the life of the Palestinian people, many of whom live in poverty, they not only spent it on rockets and tunnels, but on themselves. And, you know, where is the leader of Hamas? He's not in Gaza. He's in Qatar, living a very luxurious lifestyle. But I've always wanted a two-state solution. It seems that both sides couldn't get there. But that's not totally Israel's fault. It is true. A lot of political pressure was brought by pro-Israel groups and others and many Democrats in the past against those who said 
Israel should not have so many settlements and try to get Netanyahu or whoever was prime minister to pull back on that. I understand that point of view. And any effort to get the Israelis to restrain themselves, particularly in these other, I don't know if you call them wars or skirmishes that broke out against Hamas, uh, there was a lot of pushback. And undoubtedly, there were those who said, you know, you're anti-Zionist or you're anti-Israel, and sometimes those charges were overstated. But we are a long way away from a two-state solution now. I think Andrew Sullivan scores some good points when he talks about chilling the debate. But I also think, you know, there have been, yesterday there were demonstrations, yesterday and Saturday, around the world, thousands of people, I think hundreds of thousands, or maybe 100,000, showing up in London. Thousands of people at one point taking over New York's Grand Central Station, another point marching across the Brooklyn Bridge. They have every right to peacefully demonstrate. But those who cheer, those who cheer the deaths of Israelis and the torture and the desecration and the burning of families and all the other absolute atrocities... I don't see how anybody who has a heart can defend that. All right, number two. Let's talk about the new House Speaker, Pop Quiz. Yeah, his name is Mike Johnson. Uh, In the moments before he was to face a vote on becoming Speaker of the House this week, says the New York Times, uh, Congressman Mike Johnson posted a photograph on social media with an inscription entitled, In God We Trust. Well, that's used in a lot of places. His colleagues celebrated his candidacy by circulating an image of him on bended knee, praying for divine guidance. This is a piece basically about Mike Johnson's faith. And in his first speech, after his surprise victory as House Speaker, he um, cast his ascendance to the position, second in line to the presidency, that's right, in religious terms. I believe God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment. Goes on to say that the mild-mannered conservative was elevated after weeks of chaos, as you know, is known for placing his evangelical Christianity at the center of his political life and policy positions. Well, that's his faith. I think it's fine to report it. I don't have any problem with it except people look for examples of extremism. And remember, this guy so quickly threw his hat in the ring and suddenly, boom, everybody was exhausted and he's the new Speaker of the House. A lot of journalists had to Google him as well. That whatever vetting the media would have done is actually taking place now, and sometimes in a pretty heavy-handed way, after he's already got the job. So, he's the son of a firefighter, first in his family to attend college, deep roots in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the nation's largest Protestant denomination. He believes that his generation has been wrongly convinced that a separation of church and state was outlawed in the Constitution. Gee, I was under that impression as well. Uh, In his interview with Sean Hannity on Fox, uh, Johnson said he is a Bible-believing Christian And that to understand his politics, you only need to pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview. So he does not hide this in any way, shape, or form. 
But then you get into some of the details and whether or not he's a Christian nationalist is the phrase the time used. I don't know exactly what that is, uh, but I does, I'm going to venture a guess that much of the left is opposed to it. So, for example, his opposition to abortion, he's called abortion a holocaust. His opposition back in the mid-2000s to same-sex marriage, not just to same-sex marriage, but the homosexuality itself, he has written it's inherently unnatural and a dangerous lifestyle. But let me jump in here and say, when he was asked in that same Hannity interview, I may have mentioned this on Friday, what about these quotes? He said, look, I don't know, I haven't heard anybody talk about same-sex marriage in a long time. The Supreme Court made it the law of the land. That was in 2015. I'm a constitutional lawyer. I respect that decision and we move forward. Which was very deft on his part, I think, not to get into defending some of the language that he had used on any of these subjects, but same-sex marriage is a really good example. Okay, more quotes being dug up from the past. This sprawling alliance of anti-God enthusiasts has proven frightfully efficient at remaking America in their own brutal, dehumanizing image. Space of a few decades, they've managed to entrench abortion and homosexual behavior, objectify children into sexual objects, criminalize Christianity in the popular culture. Not sure I see much evidence to support that and promote guilt and self-doubt as the foremost qualities of our national character. He also said the removal of religion from public schools, again, church and state, has had a tragic effect. It's only and always the Christian viewpoint that is getting censored. The fact is the left is always trying to shut down the voices of the Christians. So as I said with Andrew in the previous segment, I think he paints with too broad a brush. I don't have any problem with his Christian viewpoint guiding him. But remember, until a few days ago, he was guided first as a private lawyer and then as a self-described, very conservative lawmaker from Louisiana representing only that district of Louisiana and been reelected several times. So obviously um, he must be in tune with that district. Now, I think he recognizes that he can fight for what he believes in, but as Speaker of the House, he really represents the whole country, and he certainly represents the entire House of Representatives, including, if he wants to get anything done, the Democrats who trailed the Republicans by just a few votes. So I think there's a decent chance, based on his own rhetoric about bipartisanship, that at least at the beginning, until he maybe finishes his honeymoon with the hardline conservative rebels in the House, he'll have some running room to do things like avoiding the next government shutdown, trying to broker some kind of compromise on aid to Israel and aid to Ukraine. But we shall see. It's a tough, tough challenge. It's a big, big job to learn on the fly. And Mike Johnson will have his chance. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Number three, Joe Biden now has a primary opponent. No, I'm not talking about 
Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. has left the Democratic Party for an independent run. It is, talk about obscure members of Congress, Dean Phillips, three-term rep from Minnesota, and he felt that somebody ought to challenge the ADO president, and he is. Jack Schaefer in Politico just kind of takes a bazooka to this whole idea. He talks about other primary challenges in the past that haven't succeeded, whether it was Pat Buchanan against George H.W. Bush in 92, whether it was Ross Perot against Clinton and Bush 41, in 1992, ran again in 96, but wasn't as much of a force. And even goes back to Ted Kennedy challenging Jimmy Carter and probably wounding his candidacy in 1980. But he says, Phillips has name recognition near zero. He has staked out no distinguishing political position. He has no real congressional accomplishments. And he's about to run against the president of his party. What makes Phillips unique, says Schaefer, is that he has no real policy or political bones to pick with Biden. Even RFK and Marianne Williamson were taking on Biden on certain issues. Dean Phillips adores Biden, whom still calls a wonderful and remarkable man, holder of an extraordinary legacy. He voted for um, Biden legislation, oh, 100% of the time. After Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress, he said, I'm so grateful America elected Joe Biden to be our president. So what's his motivation? When he was on Meet the Press back in August, Phillips said some Democrat should challenge Biden, but he was not the guy. Well, now he's the guy. He just thinks we should turn the page and pass the torch. I mean, it's clearly about Biden's age. And He denied that, saying this is about how people feel, which is just a euphemistic way of saying it. Yes, Biden has low approval numbers, but because no big-name Democrat, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, or others are willing to enter the contest and pursue the same policies or, you know, risk ending their career, Dean Phillips thinks he should apply for that. Uh... A vote for me is a vote for Joe Biden. Only you get me, not Joe, is an unsatisfying Phillips campaign slogan. But it might be all he's got. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when Gene McCarthy, who I think was also mentioned in the piece, 1968, does uh, challenges LBJ in the New Hampshire primary, loses, but makes him enough of a showing that, let's see, it's about... Two months, maybe six weeks later, Lyndon Johnson withdraws from the presidential race of 1968. If Phillips would simply level with voters and say what he's thinking, we should turn the page on Biden because in 30 months, the last 30 months, the president has lost a step or two. Then Biden could at least respond directly. Instead, by constantly pointing to Biden's low approval numbers, he can't be said to improving them. If anything, he's helping Trump beat Biden. So I don't know how hard he wants to run against Joe Biden. Obviously, this is a way for him to get a lot of attention. He's in the Mike Johnson category. Who? Dean who from Minnesota? Um, Maybe he hopes lightning will strike. 
Or maybe it'll be a repeat of 68 where he can't get anywhere, but he attracts enough of a protest vote that somebody else, stronger politically, more of a viable candidate for the presidency, as Bobby Kennedy did after Gene McCarthy got in, made the, sort of cleared the path or made the world safe for a challenge to Johnson uh, back more than a half century ago. Number four, you remember the FTX scandal and the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried has been going on. Here's some of what's happened. He's irritated the judge. He's rationalized spending on political campaigns and Super Bowl ads. And he's deflecting blame, what a shock, for the loss of billions of dollars from the balance sheet of the trading firm Alameda Research, which he he also controlled. Mistakes were made, but he always acted in good faith, says the Washington Post. So he was giving, uh, uh, Bankman Free was giving such long, rambling answers to questions from the defense attorney that the judge, Lewis Kaplan, asked him to stop talking. At other times, Kaplan rephrased the defense attorney's questions to try to get more direct answers from Bankman-Fried. At one point, Kaplan admonished Sam Bankman-Fried for trying to provide his own definition of market manipulation. You will take what I say manipulation means, the judge telling the jury. So Bankman-Fried tried to explain the big spending on, for example, uh, getting stadiums to name their arenas after FTX, saying, well, the goal was to shape a regulatory framework for crypto trading, always controversial, and eventually uh, hope to offer futures trading. He said no one told him about the account that Alameda used to spend FTX funds until he somehow miraculously saw references to it in a database. He said he had to check with developers to make sure it was real, that he was surprised to find out Alameda's net asset value was far lower than he had assumed. I mean, that's been the gist when he's talked to reporters. You know, I just didn't know. I was a little lazy. I was, I should have known. I should have checked. So in May of 22, when the price of Bitcoin crashed, and Alameda was veering toward bankruptcy, Beckman-Fried said he blamed members of his inner circle, not him, of course, for trying to prop that company up. The jury was shown a memo he sent to uh, two Alameda executives in which Beckman-Fried advocating shutting down the investment firm and said its CEO, his former girlfriend, Carolyn Ellis, who has already testified against him, is not a natural leader and probably never will be. But these two other guys said, oh, that's a bad idea to close Alameda. And the judge said he couldn't contend. That wasn't a proper defense that he relied on the advice of lawyers. Everybody tries to say they rely on the advice of lawyers. Story five. It's been one year since Elon Musk bought Twitter. And things are not looking so good. But it's fascinating and revealing the kind of stories are being written, like this one in the Washington Post, the bias against Musk, who's just viewed as a kind of a dumb right-winger, is really telling. Now, some of this stuff is fair. The number of people actively tweeted 
It's dropped more than 30%, according to unreported data obtained by the paper. And the company is hemorrhaging advertisers and revenue. I think we all kind of know that at this point. But Musk has delivered on his original promise. Twitter has become far less woke. Now get some of this. He has rapidly re-engineered who can have a voice on a service that used to be the hub of real-time news and global debate. A site that fueled social movements such as the Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, and Me Too, all of which the Washington Post approves of, has veered noticeably rightward under Musk, especially in the U.S. A post-analysis of dozens of conservative and right-wing influencers and media figures found that many saw their follower counts rise on the day Musk became owner, and they continue to rise as a higher rate than under Twitter's previous ownership. By the way, it was not exactly a golden age. There was a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech then, too. Now, dozens of left-wing accounts examined by the Post show the same pattern. And then it says, look, I mean, we all know that Elon Musk is not shy about sharing his views, that he's endorsed Ron DeSantis, that uh, he hosted his launch, flawed as it was, on Twitter spaces, that he reinstated Donald Trump, who hasn't tweeted, and that one of his first moves was to court uh, Tucker Carlson after he was fired by Fox. Musk has furthered the company's right-wing turn, word turn, excuse me, by displacing the mainstream media from a position of authority on the site. Let me just read that again because it's so delicious. Because in the post view, the mainstream media share stands for truth, justice, and the American way. Mainstream media doesn't lean to the left. Why would anybody say that? It's the right-wingers who increasingly gravitate toward X. They're the problem from a position of authority on the site. Now, the whole lot of people out there, and many of them conservative, but not exclusively, who think the mainstream media shouldn't have a position of authority on the site, that that's a form of censorship. And we have seen research from the Twitter files that that was exercised by pressure from the media, pressure from the government to get rid of opinions they didn't agree with or thought would be damaging to the public debate, even though they sometimes turned out to be true. So the platform has become a cacophony, says the Washington Post, of misinformation and confusing reports, according to new research from the University of Washington, which found that news aggregators and open source researchers far outperformed traditional media on the site during the Israel-Gaza war. Now, that's intended on a knock on the MSM, but, you know, it's hard to do a lot of uh, original reporting. It's dangerous. About 29 journalists, most of them foreign, have been killed in that war. It's hard to get in or out of Gaza. And so, you know, anything that sort of takes the mainstream media down a peg is seen as, you know, apocalyptic, is seen as how dare these crazy right-wingers. Here's Dan Pfeiffer, former uh, top aide to Barack Obama. Twitter used to be a place where politics and news conversations were being shaped on a minute-by-minute basis. I don't think it's because I'm a Democrat or on the left. It's no longer a place to get accurate information. Okay, we can debate that. It's like one semi-defense of Musk, one paragraph. People who work with Musk say he isn't rigidly partisan, that he personally contacted former CNN host Don Lemon to try to get some original content there. 
Researchers say a broader political shift took shape when Musk began again, compared to what? Yeah, he seems to lean much more to the right. He's made clear he doesn't approve of the New York Times, NPR, and other organizations that he regards as very left-leaning. Now, just sort of a footnote here. Musk over the weekend vowing to help Gaza citizens with his Starlink satellite service. The region went without internet for two days, shut down by Israel. So it was very hard to communicate with anybody there for journalists. Now it's been restored or partially restored, but he made the offer. Starlink's or Starlink, excuse me, already helps Ukraine with technology during its ongoing war with Russia. So Elon Musk saying the company will bring connectivity to Gaza by providing access to internationally recognized aid organizations. Uh, This came after a tweet that Musk made of AOC, in which she criticized Israel for cutting off communications in the area ahead of the ground invasion to limit the ability of Hamas terrorists to organize an attack. Personally, I wouldn't mind limiting or wiping out the ability of Hamas terrorists to organize an attack, given the absolutely inhumane and just unspeakable atrocities that it inflicted on Israeli families, children, babies, and the kidnapping, continuing to hold 229 hostages. So Musk in the news, just because the anniversary came up, we're seeing a lot of negative pieces, not a lot of positive. Hey, thanks for uh, sticking with me on the podcast. Always a lot to get to on Mondays. Always appreciate your time. We're back here tomorrow with more Busby. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.